Hungry for change in your life? Feed your ambition with Board Bia Talent Academy's Insights and Innovation Program. Get some incredible food for thought with a fully funded master's from DCU Business School. Learn from world-class innovators with placements in Irish food, drink and horticulture companies. And do it all while bringing home the bacon with a generous monthly bursary. Sound like your cup of tea? Nourish your career prospects by visiting boardbia.ie forward slash talent academy. Applications closing soon. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And this podcast is supported by Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. This week, we're going to talk about the media. We're going to talk about whether it's screwed or whether it's going to thrive, whether there are any digital or tech solutions involved and generally what our prospects are. As such, this is a very incestuous uh, podcast, so fair warning in advance. I'm joined by Mark Cohn, who's the Chief Commercial Development Officer here in Independent News and Media, which is a pretty big job within the organisation. Steve Dempsey, who's Head of Product and also a columnist uh, with the Sunday Independent. Both Steve and I both wrote columns on this topic recently in the Sunday Independent. It's been the subject of other commentary in... uh, uh, Laura Slattery wrote it, good piece in the Irish Times about it as well. Steve, I'll start with you. Are we in the media? Are we screwed? Um, God, it's a difficult question. In some ways, yes. In other ways, absolutely not. Okay. Um, in some ways, it's probably a better time than ever to be involved in the media. I think we can actually have a broader audience for journalism and for content that's created. I hate the term content. But you know, there are more people out there who are willing to spend time with the stuff that journalists and media companies create than ever before. The problem is making money out of that. I like the vi- I like the positive approach you're taking to this, but in the last few weeks, a few things have happened to crystallise some of the challenges behind journalism. So the Times Ireland uh, announced that it's going to stop printing its uh, its paper, daily paper edition. It will maintain some sort of presence online. There have been um, some redundancies across the sector, including in the, in in this company, and this is really part of something we've seen coming for quite a few years, isn't it? So I guess what we're all trying to figure out in the industry, and none of us have the absolute answer. We think we have some uh, ways to, 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 to grow the business and to, to look at alternate models. But is there anything, are there any signs of hope? What are the signs of hope in your view? Uh, I, th- I think there are some signs of hope, but again, it is a very difficult um, area to be operating in. I mean, I think the the issue always, specifically to Ireland, is that we're looking for scale in a very small market. Mm-hmm. So a lot of kind of digital online offerings will only exist if there's a huge pool of people you can draw on, whether that's advertising revenue or subscriber revenue. So mm-hmm. obviously in Ireland, you know, we're looking at there's only a few players who could really only survive in a pool as small as Ireland. And RT really does muddy the waters because it's such a state support. Yeah, I'll definitely come on to RT in a while because I've, uh, in my last job before I joined uh, INM, I was at the Sunday Business Post and I was in charge of rebooting their website then. And at the time, I remember having a bee in my bonnet because 
it, it came home to me so strongly how much of a home advantage RT has in using license fee money not to provide a news service, which is their obligation, but to promote the online end of the news service on every news bulletin and stuff that would cost us an absolute fortune yeah. to do. Well, we on were. every six, you're right, on every kind of six, yeah. one bulletin, it says check out the news. I mean, that's nothing RT, against though, RT. Right? I, I think they, by yeah. and large, they do a very but good But they job. also use their well-known personalities and now they're increasingly cropping up online, writing opinion pieces and very good opinion pieces, mm. but they are making life more difficult for the other online players. Now, mm. A few years ago in England, when the BBC was re-looking at its charter, they went and they looked at and they did some research into whether the BBC was actually potentially cannibalising mm. that kind of commercial pool for uh, UK online providers and I think also radio in the UK. Uh, and they found, I think the BBC did a piece of research that found the BBC was not harming. Uh, well, of course. So yeah. I think like it would be really welcome in Ireland if something similar was to take place in RT, not to curtail them per se, but to actually say, do you know what, the, mm. the right space for them to play or at in. least to know what the, the rules are. I mean, Mark, I, I, I'm of the view that RT could probably still ramp it up if they want to. I still don't really understand why if RT prepares some really decent, hard-hitting investigations or the news packages that they, present, uh, that they have every day, in many cases, they have those ready to go hours before the 6-1 or the, the 9 o'clock bulletin, but they will hold those from online until after the, the TV and the radio bulletin. My understanding is that's for their own internal management and reasons and editors and the way they're staffed. Mm. But actually, if they really wanted to throw more at their online news service, they could probably, you know, they could probably have a much more aggressive offering uh, if, if they wanted. Yeah, I mean, RT is in a little bit of an in, invidious position in the, in the, it's, it's from my previous experience in the TV industry, um, you don't usually have the model of a public service broadcaster with an advertising arm, which means the incentives for RTE to move into the areas of a commercial business are greater than an institution like the BBC. So I think um, regulatory clarity is helpful. The idea of us having a level playing field and everybody knowing where they sit uh, is really important. And that's actually something that the broadcast industry has been struggling with. So TV3 has a, an ongoing debate uh, with RTE about kind of the public service remit of RTE. So I think that is kind of an important thing to understand, but almost we're kind of dividing up a pie and then I think it's also important to remember and kind of step back a little bit and to say, well, okay, is the, is the pie growing or shrinking or, or whatever? And, and, and fundamentally, rather than the individual slices within the pie, the big, the big shift here is the fact that if you wind the clock back 30 years ago pre-internet, then the media was in a really strong, almost monopolistic position. And, and you know, if... if if a consumer wanted to know um, the breaking news or even if they wanted to know mundane stuff mm. about what they want to watch on the TV that night or whatever or the weather, then, you know, we were we had a business model that was built around basically being a monopoly. Well, and if you sat on a, a bus, it would entirely likely that you would see every second or third seat would have a, a paper open because that is, other than radio, if you were portable, that's how you basically got your information C completely and i think our, our as an industry whether it be whatever arm of the media whether we're talking about broadcasting whether we're talking about newspapers we kind of built our business models around that position 
And I think what we've seen over the, over the last 30 years really is the dam burst with the internet, that kind of gatekeeper role disappeared. And then we, we're still seeing the ramifications on the industry. Um, and, and essentially just when the, the, the bow wave has, has hit the individual parts of the industry just depends how high or mm. the, the valley they happen to be. So I think a lot of what we're seeing today is more about that. And you can think about re-slicing the pie, but really it's about, for me, business model shift to, to move from this idea of, listen, we're broadcasting, we're pumping out stuff to being more around what consumers actually want. How do we recreate the value that we've got as an organization. I mean, it's, a good, it's a good point. When this topic is parsed, usually nine times out of 10, particularly in a media context, it ends up settling back into comfortable old tropes about how social media networks are being t bullies or totally unfair and the internet is a terrible thing and we need to regulate it more and that's the way to do it. And it's, for me, all too rarely we focus on what our future products and services might be. The way that we, in, in an environment where a teenager is likely to subscribe to Spotify and Netflix, Netflix and one or two other things, in other words, there is money there, there is a, a, a lot of interest there. You mentioned the, the size of the media pie commercially for the traditional players, it might be smaller. But in terms of what media is and how many people are accessing media, even if it is through Facebook or some other uh, service, probably never been greater. I mean, you, the average 16-year-old walking down the road, I would argue, has is probably better informed on some issues or reads news in some way much more frequently than I did when I was 16. Yeah, and I think... And the nature of the relationship has changed as well. I mean, you mentioned Spotify, though, mm. Adrian, in terms of that kind of ongoing commitment, typically, subscription, if indeed people are not taking the free ad-based service. Yep. Um, I think that's really important because that business model, if you, you look at publishers now who are starting to turn the corner in the green shoots, that, that, those green shoots are kind of being planted in the idea of a subscription business model mm -hmm. from a consumer's perspective quite often. And, you know, we're definitely seeing a shift to people getting used to subscription as a concept and what I think it enables publishers to do is to actually have instead of being broadcasting stuff out to have a real relationship so mm -hmm. we all kind of know relationships don't kind of work that well if you just talk and you never listen mm -hmm. and I think as an industry there's been a bit too much of that and now as broadcast as broadcasters media houses move to having individual one-on-one -on -one relationships I think we're now starting to develop a relationship where we understand our subscribers better, better serve their needs, and that means you can add the value back in that perhaps we lost when the internet came along and, and took away the monopoly of the industry. Steve, talking about different business models, uh, Mark is talking about subscriptions there, and in massive markets like the US, we see the New York Times now has 4.5 million paid subscriptions. Uh, it has worked for niche players, large niche players like the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, the Guardian has its very kind of odd but very successful membership club style, um, uh, sub not subscription, but donation service, which has actually pulled it out of the red and into the black. But uh, my question is, I wonder, do you have a perspective on this? It's fine for the New York Times or the Washington Post to get two or three million paying subscribers. But is that 
replicable for other newspapers that don't have that international or that absolutely premium national uh, position? I think it, a lot of it comes down to the brand and the perception of the brand. And people are willing to invest and invest in their kind of hard-earned cash in terms of subscriptions mm. with brands that are seen to offer them value and resonate with them and all the good things that marketeers would say. So Spotify and Netflix are great examples. People see worth in, in subscribing to those yeah, I want, offerings. I want music. I want, I yeah. want to see a movie. And the same goes for the New York Times. The interesting thing in the news space was that I remember a year or two ago, uh, Mark Thompson, the CEO of the New York Times, saying he could see space only for about 10 English-speaking subscription-based news services globally. At a global level. Yeah, because Mm. it it really is an issue of scale. Did he mention independent news media as well? (laughs) I don't think he did. I think he did, actually, you'll find. (laughs) I think, you know, The Guardian is a really interesting one to to bring up because they're not just doing subscription. Subscription is, in my mind, a very voguish approach to what's happening. Mm. A lot of media entities are going that and that route. And actually it makes an awful lot of sense for broad, for those kind of big 10 broad news providers, but also also in niche subscription services. Oh, so yeah. there are people who can actually make a go of it very well around very targeting very small audiences. Um, well, the, the one that we always point out is um, Second Captains, which is the former yeah. News Talk boys. The last time they divulged their figures, which was about 18 months ago, they had reached o- over 10,000 monthly subscribers at around a fiver each on the Patreon mm. system. That's 50 grand a month, that's 600 grand a year divided between five of them. It's almost certainly more and um, now, and that's with fairly modest production costs. So that's there is a new media company that is making a go of it yeah. based on people paying for the stuff. And they don't need the the, the big legacy nope. brand stuff that you need nope. to, to get a get a paper out on a daily basis. Nope. But I think the, the Guardian one is also worth calling out because I think the secret sauce of what the Guardian has done is not just that they're looking for recurring subscriptions. They're actually looking for one-off payments as well. Mm. And I think that allows a whole new type of people to give them money because they see value in what they're doing. Mm. And the Guardian can do this because obviously they're a trust and their whole aim is to set up liberal... Values. Yeah, and pro- probably the thing about the but hold on, the numbers they have on on an annual basis. There, I think the last time when they say, came out and yeah. said they were breaking even, they got something like six hundred and fifty thousand subscribers in yeah. one year. But they got three hundred thousand one-off payments as well. Okay. So they actually have an entirely other revenue stream that seems like it's part of the same thing, but it's not. It's actually a different thing. So, uh, it, the Guardian raises some really fascinating questions that come right back down to the core of what we're talking about, and that is where the media is going. Because The Guardian, I I will hazard a guess that the majority of the people that have uh, plumped for a one-off payment or a subscription to The Guardian have done so as a vote of support in what they believe The Guardian stands for. Well, it's also as well, not just that, but also one-off really good articles that people really find value in. I think you, so. They're not really getting is that, is that. That that was. I remember reading a report on it. They're not. They're, a lot of them are U.S. based. Okay. And they're not just looking for a one-off Trump bump. They're getting these individual spikes across the year. Uh, the, most of the analysis of the Guardian's cash subscriptions that I've seen has suggested that it falls very much into uh, fellow ideological. Um, passengers who like that there is a guardian there to put forward their point of view. And maybe that is core to the the basic question, what is it that you want from uh, your media provider? But that's also a tricky one as well, because we're now seeing, certainly in the UK, you've got The Guardian and even maybe slightly more to the left, Channel 4 News, 
which are really campaigning ideological mm. uh, entities. And then on the right, you've got the Daily Telegraph, you've got the Daily Mail. They uh, have gone for, for different uh, commercial models, but uh, in the States, it is completely polarized. So I'm wondering, is The Guardian a gateway into a... Do we just have to accept a more polarized media as part of this new commercial landscape? Do you have a view on that, Mark? Yeah, I think... I mean, if you look at other categories, right? So, 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 ultimately, we're trying to get value to to consumers. So, there's a couple of ways you can do that. To Steve's point, transactional things. Your product can have value, but the classic thing is, and much as we might not like to talk about it, but brand affinity is is the other classic way of I I identify with this brand. So that, isn't um, that what I just isn't that would that roughly fit into what I just described with the Guardian? Absolutely, and it's a bit it's a bit of both, and and. You know, Steve mentions kind of the voguish subscription. Even even more voguish is membership, and 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 that is really an affinity play. So it's about I identify with this brand, I identify with its sets of values, and I think I, I'm in one of the articles over the weekend. I think it was Steve's. We, he mentions the correspondent, which is I think very much kind of a, a kind of something where. The, it's very much very a passionate group of people who Just believe in the project. The, is the correspondent one of the media house titles? No, it's the no. Dutch ones. Oh, it was the Dutch, the Dutch ones, guys okay. who hoovered up a lot. I'm trying to remember who owns us now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not careful. a plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, but I mean, this is kind of the coming force, and I think I think that question of scale is really interesting to to Steve's point. So. And who be it for me to disagree with Mark Thompson? But I think I think maybe Mark's definition of success might be different. I mean, for me, the definition of success is that we we have a sustainable business model that supports independent journalism, and I think we've now got a rainbow of sizes from platforms like Patreon, which kind of support individual journalists and 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 individual kind of operations, right through to the big ones. But if you look across Europe. There's lots of publishers who've made a, a a big change in trajectory in terms of their their business model by moving to subscription and membership, and they're even now starting to see regionals. And I know Steve mentioned the Boston Globe, which is a big regional, obviously. But all Americans are big regionals. Uh, yeah, yeah, but in in Europe, we're starting to see regionals who are who are making a go of it. But as as ever, it kind of depends how good the product is, how good the brand is. They, these are important intangible factors. But I think the regional point is very well made and it actually ties back to what you originally said, Mark. It's actually about brand affinity. And what more affinity than the, the local media outlet that is from the same place as you're from? You know, so whether it's the desert news well, in Utah or... I think you can see that in the Irish market. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, but if you look at the Irish titles, for example, the print titles or the broadcast titles. It's harder with broadcast because RT is a state-funded organisation. And most of us feel some sort of affinity with that as, as being sort of part of the Irish setup, whether we're critical of it or whether we, we like it. Um, across the print titles, I think most individual newspapers, you know, if you actually spoke to their editors for half an hour or an hour, you would actually come away with a sense of what they think their brand affinity is. The Irish Times would have a different one to the Irish Independent, would have a totally different one from the Irish Examiner um, to the Sunday World to the Daily Mail. Um, and th it brings us onto another question. We're, we're not always great about asking ourselves hard questions in the Irish media, but I do wonder in the absence of a breakthrough of a commercial model to uh, supplement or replace 
a lot of the commercial business that newspapers have had, do we actually have too many newspapers in the Irish market? Or is there any sense of whether we do or we don't or that we can sustain that for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Does, does anyone have... I, I mean, my own sense is that I think we, in terms of the print format, there may actually be physically too many newspapers for the Irish market in the transition we're in, in at the moment to actually commercially support. I don't know. Anyone want to? <laughs> anyone want to take that politically easy question? Well, I'll, I probably won't answer it. That's my yeah. way out of that. I mean, yeah. I, I don't really have a sen- sense of mm. that, and I don't think anybody does. There may be people say yes, no, and maybe, but I think until we've kind of, as an industry, moved to models that are, provide more value, which we, is a road we've not done yet, we won't know the answer to that See, question. Like, here's that. the thing. That we've, we've recently had elections in this country. By and large, I think the coverage across most hotels was pretty good. I think it was fairly informative. When something else happens, a news event happens, I go to press conferences, there will be maybe nine or ten different media titles there. Maybe there are two or three different broadcasts and maybe six or seven different print titles. Now, if it's a run-of-the-mill press conference, we pretty much all run variations of the same story. Some of us may have a different angle on it. Some of us may have uh, an extra news element to it. But a lot of the time, it'll be the same sort of story. You see this, it's even worse in the American media for this, for like uh, when Trump turns up something, there'll be a hundred different titles there. They all basically uh, print the same thing. Like, why do we need 10 different versions of the same well, it, I think it comes back to the debate we were just having, right? So, so if, you, if you've got value because you've got a point of view and also that point of view can be a sense of place, then it can be multiple. So if you, if you have, are adding value, then I think th- there is a purpose, like, like in any market. So by, let's, I mean, let's be frank here in terms of plain English. By adding value, I presume you mean something like a very particular informative take on something or an extra element to it that makes it easier to understand or an extra uh, bit of news that other titles don't have. Precisely. And I I think sometimes as an industry, we kind of get into the format, you know, oh, is it print? Is it digital? Is it? And actually, I think that's of less value. I mean, I mean, that's important, surely, because you don't see people with, by and large, you don't see people on buses with newspapers anymore. You see them looking at their phones. But it's not really, I think the underlying root cause. So actually, print subscriptions are holding up much more kind of readily than kind of once-off transactional purposes in the, in the news agents. So, you know, the demise of print, I think, is somewhat kind of, it has its place in the mix. What's really behind it, though, is the product that's delivered in the format. And, and if you, exactly as you say, um, Adrian, if, if you have a, a unique take, if you have a more in-depth take, a more accessible, there are many ways to kind of add value um, in the industry jar- jargon. And I think we haven't, as an industry, explored all of those yet. And it's only when we've done all of that we'll know, you know, what how the industry would shape, shape, yeah. shake out. I mean, it's worth also saying that there are new entities being born at the moment and there's a lot of interest to see how they will perform. I mean, I mentioned the Second Captains as a Patreon example. The former editor of Sunday Business Post, Ian Kyo, um, and his colleague Tom Lyons, who has worked for most of the newspapers uh, in Ireland, um, they're about to launch a new online 
media play. It's going to be subscription only. It's going to focus more on business and maybe some investigative stuff as well. There's going to be an awful lot of interest to see what the market is for that, isn't yeah. there? And let's not forget there's there's the less new upstarts that have been there for a while and do a really good job, the journal.ie. Yep. Um, we've got uh, Maximum Media with Joe and, yeah. and their products. And the They're Maximum doing a great Media job. is a really interesting one because they have totally uh, bypassed the whole subscription model and they've gone a very, very different route focusing on getting big sponsors for individual um, channels focusing a lot on creativity. To be fair to joe.a or joe.co.uk, uh, I think their mashups and their spoof satirical videos of the of the, break, the main Brexit players uh, in the UK over the last six, 12 months have been fantastic, mm. very creative. Um, so there is a lot to say that the current environment, out of you know the severe challenges, and in some case catastrophic challenges that some parts of the media are facing at the moment. A lot of creativity and innovation—I hate that word—but it uh, is is being born, right? Absolutely, and I think it goes back to the whole point about brand affinity. That those really good videos that Joe makes people like, and they make mm. them feel good, and they resonate with them. So of course people share them, and then they. they their footprint grows. I, I think to go back to Mark's point, I think the, the really interesting point is it, it's, I think sometimes you mean the I media, been saying interesting points? You've been <laughs> always making interesting points. Uh, but the interesting point I, I think is about, we focus too much sometimes on the delivery system. So we're saying, oh, print, it's really important to discuss print or it's really dis interesting mm -hmm. to discuss broadcast. In some ways, I think the job of reinventing the business model for journalism for the next, whatever, 20 to 100 years is about distribution. If the media is guilty of one thing, it's about letting go of the distribution channels, letting Facebook and Google steal in. And you know what? If people want to, you were saying this good point earlier on, that media often bleats uh, mm -hmm. in about, oh, somebody needs to come in and regulate these people. The media is guilty of, of not actually protecting its own distribution system online. I can't think of any media brand that actually saw the opportunity that Facebook provided and invested at an early stage and tried to guide it in line with what it saw. As, yeah, we as were a little bit, we didn't act in the same way as the movie companies did when they saw the, the music companies being taken out by digital platforms. We were a little bit arrogant, maybe. I, I don't think we were lazy, uh, but I think we were, we just didn't see the threat that digital platforms um, or we thought somehow we could master them, or that we thought that everybody would always naturally come back to to our website uh, rather than uh, aggregators. Yeah, and I think there very little value was put on the content by giving it away for free to a certain extent. But at the same time, there was a belief at the beginnings of the internet that online advertising would be able to come in and support the whole enterprise. Mm. And now that's changed over time as programmatic, as, mm. as we go from kind of direct sell to programmatic and targeted advertising. And, and sometimes you actually find when it comes to the advertising ecosystem, it's very unclear where the money goes. So a great example The Guardian did is they bought ads on their own platform about mm. two years ago, I think, and they found that for every pound they were spending, only 20 cents of their investment went into the, 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 the front end manifestation of the ads they were actually buying. The rest got lost somewhere on the internet where there's all these people yeah. aggregating and real time bidding and all this stuff. The, the, the money was getting flushed out and, and disappearing somewhere. Mm. The very fact that we're having a relatively calm discussion about this now suggests to me that I think we may almost be over the hysterical name-calling uh, phase that we naturally go through uh, when discussing this issue, particularly around the tech companies and social media companies. Um, I think the US went through that about 10 years ago. Then the European and UK media companies 
kind of were in the, the, the red hot throes of it about three or four years ago. But it's, uh, and, you know, Axel Springer and Rupert Murdoch um, saying that, you know, Google and Facebook are ruining the world and destroying uh, the media. Now, we still, we still sort of believe that. But it's it's not our main argument anymore. They're ruining democracy, not necessarily. Sorry, just democracy. Yeah, yeah, that's not as important. Uh, John, one of the interesting things about that is how the media in certain countries is trying to band together to actually form a critical mass. So there have been a few attempts in the UK just to do it from an advertising perspective Mm -hmm. to pool advertising across the Guardian and a few other people. I think the initial approach was called Pangea, and there's one other still that's live. It's been hard to get working. I think in France, Le Monde and Le Figaro maybe did something similar. And some of the German publishers have just come out in the last week or so and said, we're going to try and come together. And they're trying to go to advertisers and package up an audience. Now, if it's going to work anywhere, it's going to work in Germany, where they are slightly warier of the prying eyes of Google and the invasive approach of Facebook. And, and, you know, if if with good reason, they have a, a historical um, reasons to be wary of people looking over their shoulder and spying on them. Are we still interested in legislative options? Like I, I was listening to my former colleague Ian Kyo, he was on the radio recently discussing this issue. And I know he's a big believer in the supply side end of it, that the, uh, the government, if the government would cut VAT on paper, that would give us a boost, which it probably would. But what's, what's the feeling about that? Is that considered to be a good thing, a temporary respite? It, would it, would it uh, um, give a long-term boost to the sector? Any thoughts? Listen, I mean, the thing that we we talk quite a lot in this conversation about the media as a product and a brand, but there is a unique role for mm. the media, and that means there has to be regulatory kind of intervention where necessary to make sure the media is robust and can do the job that it 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 needs to do. In so we are we are <laughs> different in that sense than some other industries. It's not for me to kind of speculate. Maybe Steve come in on this whether what the particular regulatory kind of recourse should be in Ireland at this at this time but you know there's definitely that's something the regulators and government have to have to look at, at, at when you've got an industry that is going through mm. quite tumultuous times well just before you come in on that Steve now would be a good time for me to uh, to earn our own crust here and remind listeners that the big tech show podcast is brought to you in association with Magnet Networks, which connects businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. That was pretty impressive. It's good. Smooth. (laughs) So do you think that reducing VAT on newspapers, for example, anyone who works in newspaper, me included, would say that's a good thing because it's going to give us, if nothing else, more time to to hone our our own online commercial models. I do sort of feel, though, that some of my colleagues in in the press sort of think that that's the solution, though. Well, I think that's the thing. There are no kind of silver bullets here. I think anything, you're right to say it's kind of part of a mix. It's something that might buy a bit more time. It's something that gives us a bit of freedom to, to figure things out. Um, so I think, you know, whether, and I think the same thing applies to subscription models and stuff. Mm. None of these things are going to come in and save the media, but it's part of kind of diversifying revenue streams and, and being uh, having an understanding that, media and, and the content that journalists create is a social good and as a result it's important that people can access that and that there's freedom of access to I would agree with you on the social good I also think because I know the majority of the listeners to this podcast would be uh, either work in tech or they're interested in tech and I, I'm I'm just channeling what I think they would say and I think they would say on some issues 
I'm thinking of Brexit, for example. Facebook has spent the last two to three years being slammed for its role in in what happened to the Brexit result. I can't believe that some of the mid-market tabloids in particular get away with uh, having a benign reputation uh, with regard to Brexit and not getting slagged off for some of the stuff they printed on their front pages. In, a, in our traditional media, as in ours in, in industry, while Facebook gets slammed for it. So I, I agree with you that, you know, transparency and social good, that's what the media brings and it shines a light on wrongdoing and all of that. But um, we're not always angels either. You know? Well, I think there's a big difference between the, the, the typically Irish media brands and some of the brands <coughs> in the UK that we're very exposed to over here. And of course, they come with ideological and editorial baggage and sometimes mm. that plays into a certain approach that, yeah, you're right, it doesn't always seem uh, progressive mm. and constructive. It can be divisive and jocular. And, you know, so, so you're right. Part, listen, that is part of the custom yeah, exactly. trust media. One, one person's divisiveness is another person's you know, strongly held view. Yeah, exactly. But if we're, if we're talking about kind of legislative intervention and you were, you were talking about, you know, primarily kind of technical, people with a kind of a technical mm. interest, I think any of the legislative interventions that could be brought to bear don't really relate to technology. They relate to the kind of quirks that have been built up over time. So the Defamation Act is a biggie. And I think News Brands Ireland comes out on an annual basis and says, mm. please, God, could we do something about yep. this awful law? And again, going back to the UK, they changed their Defamation Act I think in the UK we, a few years We may years do ago. a future podcast on that because I've never heard a really good in-depth um, discussion on the defamation and the pros and cons because there are other views on defamation in Ireland. I studied law. That was my primary degree. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, the environment there would have been very protective of that, of, of defamation law. Uh, and it would have put a primacy on someone's quote unquote good character over other concerns. Now, I think many of us can agree that maybe the balance has shifted a little bit since then, but it's still worth a discussion. One thing that Timmy Dooley, the Fianna Fáil communications spokesman, uh, repeated a few weeks ago is his party support for a subsidy for uh, media. Now, I've no idea how that would work. Um, I'm assuming, I mean, independent news and media is the biggest media company, so I'm assuming we'd be there. But if I, if I worked at, say, and I'd say players like The Journal would also qualify, but would Maximum Media, would Joe Dottie get a slice Actually, of that? I think you're putting your finger on exactly the point there. There is there is an inherent snobbishness between there like is. print media people yeah. who like have ink on their fingers mm -hmm. and digital startups. And I know in certain areas like in Canada where they've proposed a similar subsidy, they are allowing a, a kind of a governance method where only the people who've been printing the news for a few hundred years are allowed to partake and you know tell people how to kind of manage this mm. kind of you know intervention of 600 million Canadian dollars or whatever so and Hearst media is okay yeah exactly but yeah so I think I think you're spot on I think like a something that is just beholden to protecting old business models is not the way to go and certainly if that makes those old business models beholden to the yeah. government it really does call into question I suspect the way it would work in Ireland is they would look to uh, media organizations that have doll passes and that's that'd be the way they'd they'd, they'd work backwards from there um, but I mean I'm not just not sure how that would work now it's maybe that they could establish a, an annual fund and leave it up to the industry itself through its own representative body the problem with that though is that I mean what is that representative body is it the BAI is it news brands because news brands is is only one section of the media mm -hmm. favors 
obviously favours print I, very heavily. I, I think you're touching on the, the fundamental problem here with, mm. with regulatory intervention. So, I mean, there is a role, but it just it has to be very careful because regulatory intervention can distort markets, and by distorting markets, you can end up having unintended consequences. And I think that's why we should be hesitant to go to some particular regulatory in instrument, whether it be VAT reduction or whatever, whatever, whatever. It, but it's an area of policy that needs to be developed and needs to have a clear strategy for. And I think that's what, as an industry, we should really be calling for, given given the importance of us to democracy, government, the state, etc. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think rather than getting bogged down in the individual mechanisms, because none of us, although it turns out that you do have a law degree, so you're probably better to opine than us, you know, that we're not really qualified to cover that per se, but definitely we need to tread carefully in this area because you can easily kind of start off with one kind of idea and end up with consequences like upholding traditional industries at the expense of digital industries, which, are, you know, I mean, I think for me, there's plenty of commercial uh, levers that that we we've not yet pulled to, to to create sustainability as an industry, and we shouldn't kind of. Whilst this is a parallel track, what we can't afford to do is is stop the primary track, which is let's we need to reinvent our business model. And I think that's we've talked about doing that for readers and consumers, but Steve touched on it earlier as well. I think for for businesses because we've got two revenue streams, we tend to talk about our readers, but businesses, advertisers, there's a lot of interesting things happening in the industry around reinventing our relationship with businesses and connecting them not just through new advertising models. I mean, Maxim Media is a good example, but um, Spark, the Telegraph's unit, New York Times are doing some interesting things around kind of native advertising. But even, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing now is publishers with completely different models, um, launching marketplace businesses and subsidizing their main business that different way. So there's lots of kind of other avenues that are opening up now and models that taken collectively, you know, regulatory intervention were appropriate and not market distorting, subscription models, maybe morphing to membership models, moving down the funnel for advertisers and businesses so we add more value. Collectively, there's lots of opportunity and emerging things we're seeing. In, with some, not everything's working. We're seeing some things I fail, but... One theory a while ago was that news organizations would use their products partly as a front-of-house uh, vehicle and then would build a lot of businesses behind that conferencing was it was always a big one uh, and the number of conferences that now take place in Ireland I'd say in the last five years I think has trebled because uh, partially because all the media uh, businesses have yeah. launched several of them and um, it turns out though that to run a very successful conference it's not enough just to have a distribution promotional platform you have to really be into it now we run a few conferences and we get many hundreds and thousands of people to them but that's not because we advertise them in the independent it's because we break our back um, uh, trying to think up interesting stuff and getting interesting um, speakers but uh, as the chief commercial development officer of the of this group I'm sure I'll have you back on at some point mm. to, when you're willing to show your hand on what those uh, industry 
uh, I won't say saving because we don't need saving. We 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 need just an evolution in the way we make money. We don't yeah. need saving. Yeah, one of the things I can't stand about this whole debate is this hashtag buy a paper. It drives me round the bend. Now, apologies to colleagues who use hashtag buy a paper, but it sounds like you're you're asking somebody for a dig out. And I know somebody will say, well, what's the difference between that and the Guardian saying, flashing across a big banner saying, look, if you if you like us, support us financially. But there is a difference. Hashtag buy a paper. And the whole, this whole idea of lecturing people, I see it on Twitter all the time. You people don't know what you're missing. You'll be sorry when, you know, the, the media is gone. That's not the way to get people to engage. Or, uh, I, it, 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 it isn't at all. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. That sense of entitlement is something I think as an industry we, desperate we, we have well. to guard against. We can have a sense of our bigger purpose, but without moving away from concepts of, dare I say it, brand affinity, adding value to our the people who pay us money. So, you know, how do we add value to readers? And there's no silver Someone is going to do bullet. a transcript of the podcast to see how many times you use the phrase add value. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it's kind of a mantra, right? And on the other side, advertisers and, and, and businesses. So how do we... There's, and there's no silver bullet, but what there are is there's a load of examples and case studies now emerging where, where publishers have made a go of it. So I was... I. I went up to Finland and talked to Sonoma, which is the Finnish biggest publisher, a few months ago. And about 40% of their revenue streams now are coming from these marketplaces. So they've got a property marketplace, they've got a cars marketplace, recruitment marketplace. And what they're doing is they're not just saying stick an ad in the paper. They're saying, okay, on the property side, for example, we'll actually sell the data back to customers with permissions, just to be clear, in terms of GDPR. So that developers know, well, actually, people are looking for this kind of property in this kind of area. So it's not, it, it's it's starting to help the whole property market become more efficient. Wouldn't that now, be nice if we can have, do something it, like that here? It would, although you are just talking about um, a commercial business there. And I am conscious that some of these solutions we're talking about are not actually media or journalism. Like, uh, but maybe that's the way we've got to think. But I no, mean, they are built on a foundation of trust and understanding of the kind of societal issues that are going on. Oh, well, hang on, on a second. You're saying that because they trust us as journalists that they're going to trust the property ad that we put up? It's no. funny, actually. Just no. I mean, there is an interesting thing because uh, I'm back to brands. Okay, so uh, media companies, and we did a little bit of a study on this fairly recently and uh, without giving away any company secrets, but... After governmental institutions, uh, all, for all of the trouble that we've just talked about and all of the, 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 the changes in the industry, the big publish- publishing media brands are the kind of the second most trusted um, brands. And, and we, that trust we have to maintain, and that's kind of part of, of our whole model. But what that also means, it does position us to act as long as we, we use that trust in the right way as a guide in various other businesses and other areas. Online dating. Well, I, I, I don't know what personal services you'll get you the, use, Adrian. But. You'll, get the right <laughs> kind, you'll get the right kind of boyfriend if you... Yeah. But, and we've seen that. And, and, you know, I mean, we've seen a number of businesses that have leveraged the brand um, without putting it in jeopardy, and also the traffic, the audience. And, and what, why that's important to this conversation is... If it helps sustain and come up with a sustainable business model, then it can support independent 
athlete-led journalism. And that, so it is kind of all part of the ecosystem and getting the ecosystem to work. In yeah, I think the ecosystem is key. And, and, and the people, there's lots of people who are doing well, and it's terrible to use New York Times as an example, but they have a really good approach to this. And they're, they're buying and building their own kind of products that answer readers' questions. And they are built on trust, and they are built on brand affinity. So, for instance, they recently launched a kind of a parenting um, thing, and they're trying to flip that from just a kind of a, a free model. And in the future, it may become paid. They've done something similar with food. Um, so they're answering their readers' questions. What mm. do I eat tonight? And then they're trying to become relevant. And in some ways, the really interesting thing is, isn't that what Google says it does? Yeah. Like it's answering people's questions yeah. as they have them. So they're, they're building a, a, a something more nuanced than Google. It does. is, I agree. It's completely I inspired. And it's also very good for the whole industry to have a totem there like the New York Times, whether you like the paper or not, or whether you rate it or not. Um, the fact that uh, an established traditional media company is there making a go of it not only gives hope to the rest of the industry, but actually also shows consumers that there is life in the old dog and that it actually may be worth subscribing to. Mm -hmm. Well, it does also have a distorting effect, I think, to people who are inside the media like us because regularly people say, well, the New York Times are doing so it, so, so should we. And yeah. it's just the whole issue goes back to what we said at the start. It mm. works with the New York Times because they've got scale. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, look, folks, we're going to leave it there. Uh, my thanks again to Magnet Networks for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you very much to Magnet Networks and also to Mark Cohn, Chief Commercial Development Officer in Independent News and Media and Steve Dempsey, Head of Product at INM, but also a regular columnist in the Sunday Independent Business section. From me, Adrian Weckler, the Tech Editor of the Irish Sunday Independent, I will talk to you the same time next week. Bye-bye. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland.